You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary, and the east boundary is the Salt Sea, to the mouth of the Jordan, and the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan, and the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north of Beth Arabah, and the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor, and so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of Enshemesh and ends at Enrogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over against the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah, and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends around to Baala, that is, Kiriath-Jerim, and the boundary circles west of Baala to Mount Seir, passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Jerim, that is, Chesalon, and goes down to Beth Shemesh, and passes along by Timnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron, then the boundary bends around to Shikaron and passes along to Mount Baala and goes out to Jabneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea. And the west boundary was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. According to the commandment of Yahweh to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksha, my daughter, as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kinaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksha his daughter as wife, when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme north toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzil, Eder, Jagur, Kina, Dimona, Adada, K 
Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Zif, Telem, Be'eloth, Hazor Hadata, Kiriath Hezron, that is Hazor, Emam, Shima, Molada, Hazor Gada, Heshmon, Beth Pelet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Bizyothiah, Baala, Im, Ezem, Eltolad, Chesil, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, Sansana, Lebaioth, Shilhim, Ain, and Rimon, in all 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtel, Zora, Ashna, Zanoa, Enganim, Tapua, Inam, Jarmuth, Adulam, Soko, Azika, Sha'arim, Adathaim, Gedera, Gedarathaim, 14 cities with their villages. Zinan, Hadasha, Migdolgad, Dilian, Mizpah, Joktil, Lachish, Bozkath, Eglon, Kabon, Lamam, Chitlish, Gedroth, Bethdagon, Nama, Makeda, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Ether, Ashan, Ifta, Ashna, Nazib, Kela, Akzib, and Merashah, nine cities with their villages. Ekron, with its towns and its villages, from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod, its towns and its villages, Gaza, its towns and its villages, to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline, and in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Soko, Dana, Kiriathsana, that is Debir, Anab, Eshtema, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, eleven cities with their villages, Arab, Duma, Eshan, Janim, Beth Tapua, Afika, Humta, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages, Maon, Carmel, Zif, Juta, Jezreel, Jokdim, Zanoa, Cain, Gibeah, and Timna, ten cities with their villages, Halhul, Bethzur, Gedur, Ma'arath, Beth Anoth, and Eltakon, six cities with their villages, Kirith Baal, that is Kirith Jerem, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Araba, Medin, Sakaka, Nibshan, the city of Salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 693 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. We just read Joshua 15, and that was the allotment for the tribe of Judah. And a little bit of an anecdote, a little story, a little character sketch to expand on this guy, Caleb, this old man at this point in the story, Caleb is at least 85 years old based on the chronology from the previous chapter, but he's an old man who, at least according to what he says, has not lost any of his 
strength and vigor from when he was 40 years old, when he was initially sent in to spy out the land of Canaan by Moses with the previous generation, all having died in the wilderness because they were rebellious and stiff-necked and unbelieving and grumbling against God. The rest of his generation, except for Caleb, except for Joshua, who's now leading the people of Israel in Moses' place, now that Moses has passed away, you have Caleb here. And it seems as though we're supposed to understand that Caleb is an important example. He's an important figure. He's an important character. He is an important man. But then there's something about him. There's a characteristic or there's a quality that's indicative. It's a type. It's a example for what will come next and what will follow after. And also perhaps the kind of man God wanted the rest of that generation to be. They wouldn't. They refused. But this guy, this guy gets to inherit the promise. And notice between our last episode, or if you didn't catch that one, just pause, go back and read Joshua 14. Between Joshua 14 and Joshua 15, what we just read, you have the dialogue of Caleb conveying a type of man who is to the point. He is direct. He's a straight shooter, so to speak. And he is down to business. His daughter comes riding in on a donkey. And his question to her is, what do you want? And we shouldn't assume that that was asked in an irritable way or in a doting way. We don't know. We don't know if it was, what do you want, my child? You know, and we shouldn't assume that it was, what do you want? You're bothering me. You're interrupting. You know, we don't know. Maybe there's a clue from the fact that she thought she could go to her father and ask this thing, but not just that she could ask. He gave her what it was that she was asking for. Maybe he's just direct. Maybe he's just to the point. It's not harshness. It's not unkindness. It's not ungentleness, but he has a lot of things to attend to. What's interesting too is he has authority. It's clear that he has authority. And as a brief aside, I want to talk a little bit before I have finished the book, and then I'll give a fuller review. But I want to talk about the toxic war on masculinity in relation to this Caleb guy. Nancy R. Piercy, I'm not familiar with her or her work previous to reading this book. I see on Goodreads that Doug Wilson gave a very high review, a very good review. He has a very high opinion of her and her work. He liked most of what she had in the book, Love Thy Body, dealing with transgenderism and gender theory and how a lot of men and women, boys and girls, are not just feeling uncomfortable with the body that God has given them, but they are taking drastic measures to alter their bodies. And here we should understand so-called gender-affirming care is a mutilation. We should also understand that it's not such a big departure from the trend towards plastic surgery, augmentation of certain attributes to make one look more beautiful, more aesthetically pleasing, 
more like the youthful man or woman they once were, or maybe weren't ever even, making them look better than ever, but like the ideal in the prime of life, male or female, depending on which they are. But Doug Wilson had a very high opinion of Nancy R. Piercy in general, her work in general, in his review for Love Thy Body, which I was just glancing at this morning. But in the toxic war on masculinity, one thing that the jury is still out on for me is whether this is embracing too much, trying to be too conciliatory with the claims of feminism, with the contention of the people who are campaigning against toxic masculinity. Part of why I say that is as Nancy R. Piercy is quoting evangelical men who are fathers and husbands or quoting evangelical men who are pastors, a lot of the kinds of things that she is drawing out of their quotes about how to be the head of one's wife or one's household isn't about being a ruler or a tyrant or a king or having authority, having power. It's about being the first to serve, things like that. I feel some uncomfortability with because how do you know that your samples here of modern evangelical American Christian sentiment aren't themselves already greatly compromised with regards to maleness and femaleness? How do you know that the church hasn't smuggled in quite a lot of feminist thinking? And how do you know that the men you're interviewing, you're talking with, aren't, when they're pastors, authors, theologians, professors, how do you know that they're not themselves trying to stay on the right side of the egalitarians, the feminists? How do you know that they're not compromising what the biblical vision is. For that matter, too, the laymen. When the laymen are asked, what are they going to say? Are they going to say, oh, yes, I am the boss. I am the manager. I am the CEO of my family. I'm the king of my family. I'm the chief. I have the power. I have." And of course, they're not going to say that. Certainly not if their name is going to be attached to that quote and that sentiment where people could actually see it. And it would get back to them that people don't like that. Ooh, we're not comfortable with that. What concerns me with the toxic war on masculinity, how Christianity reconciles the sexes so far, and I don't want to give too much away before I've had a chance to do a full review. What concerns me is that I think a similar thing is happening with regards to the war on boys, the war on men, which I hate that language, the male bashing. That is all too common right now and entirely too acceptable, entirely too comfortable for most people. If more moderate Christians with calmer dispositions and softer tones of voice are trying to make some peace here and they're trying to correct gently, they might be correcting too gently and they might be missing how long this has been going on in the American church. And part of why I say that is just take the issue of comprehensive sex education being taught in public schools. 
gender theory, critical race theory being taught in American public schools in recent years. Parents, particularly as their children were required to do remote learning, but still attend a public school, but do a Zoom call with their teachers from home. And the parents themselves also were working from home. And so they could kind of listen in on breaks as they were walking through, passing through the hallways of the house. They could look in, listen in to what their child was being taught. You had a lot of parents who came out of all that much more educated themselves on what their children are being indoctrinated with. And I understand there are more decent, God-fearing, honest, praiseworthy public school teachers, and then there are scoundrels. I don't want to paint with a broad brush here, but yes, it is possible, regardless of what the well-intentioned, God-fearing public school teachers will say, it is possible for the public system, the public education system to indoctrinate children. Yes, it is. Just because it's not having the effects that you would like to see, that doesn't mean that the system hasn't been set up to have certain effects. But the bad ones, right? The bad teachers who want your child to change genders and experiment sexually with people of their own gender and with as many people as they like of the opposite gender, and they have decided that that's their goal is to break down barriers between young people and libertinism, sexual immorality, degeneracy, to normalize all of that. The parents who are just now becoming aware of how bad the quality of education their children are receiving is from a conventional standpoint, teaching good character, teaching the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and also how bad their child's education is with regards to, hey, don't tell your parents, but we're going to go ahead and refer to you by some new pronouns. And you can even change your name. We'll call you Susan if you would prefer that over Billy when you're at school, the parents who are just now realizing as their junior high girls in some cases are attempting suicide out of nowhere. Where is this coming from? What's going on? Oh yeah. Well, it turns out little girls, little boys were being invited to after school programs where they were being groomed by gender theorists, cultural Marxists, really drag queens and homosexuals. The parents who are just now realizing that that's been happening in recent years and they're upset about it and they're complaining to their local school boards and they're having their microphones turned off and they're being condescended to, they're being patronized, they're being ignored. And they're saying, what is going on with the public school system? It's just gotten very, very bad. No, 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 no. It was already bad. It was bad from the start, because the premise was bad, it just took time for the bad fruit to ripen on the tree. It was a bad tree from the beginning. It was a bad seed from the beginning. If you want to roll it back 10 years, 20 years, you're missing the point. If you want to pull the fruit off the tree and throw it away because that's bad fruit, you need to understand that the tree itself is a bad tree. This bad fruit didn't come out of nowhere. A good tree didn't turn bad suddenly. It was a bad tree, and that's why you're getting bad fruit. You just didn't take it seriously. And it's not that people didn't warn, by the way. People have been warning about the nature of the public education system for 
over a century now, based on who came up with this model and who wanted to implement it here and what their stated goals were. There have been objections raised, concerns raised that predicted exactly what we're seeing a long, long time ago. And I'm talking a hundred years and counting in this country and 150, 200 years more broadly in Europe, where this educational scheme originally found expression, was developed in Prussia. But very similar to that, I think that some American evangelical thought leaders, commentators, pastors, theologians, professors, authors are only just now addressing these questions or these concerns, but they're trying to moderate. They're trying to find some blend that keeps everybody happy or that reconciles disparate elements. And part of how they're trying to do that is they're trying to appeal to those who have been more on the feminist side of things, more on the radical egalitarianism side of things. They're trying to find all of branches to extend to them to say, listen, no, 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 we're not like that, right? No, no, we're not oppressive patriarchs. Well, wait a second. You're adopting the premise. When you're trying so hard to prove that we are not lording it over and you're distancing yourself from the posture that the husband, the father would have authority in the home, and you want to emphasize foot washing because that's what Jesus did, it's not all Jesus did. And it's so uncareful. And I think it bears out in not just this issue, but also this issue, very similar to the educational awareness. Some are just now reluctantly running out of ways to deny that there is a major problem with the fruit of the public education system. So also, people are just now in the church. I'm not talking unsaved, those who make no claim to Christian faith. I'm talking in the church, mainstream American evangelical Christian thought leaders, not even just the lay people. I'm talking the people who are acceptable to the lay people in many cases, the people who are going to be allowed to do full-time vocational ministry work because the lay people tithe and give their offerings and buy their books and their curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. They're now running out of reasons and excuses to minimize the dangers of feminist theory, radical egalitarianism, gender theory. They're just now running out of reasons to downplay it and wave it off. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. And yet in works like this, it seems as though there's an uncomfortability with men still. Even as we say, we don't want there to be this male bashing thing all the time. No, no, we need men. There is a negotiation happening, as it were. It's like we've taken the C.S. Lewis quote from The Abolition of Man about men without chests, and we've decided, let's go halfway. We make men without chests, he writes, and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. What is that? We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. This book so far, I worry, The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Percy, I worry 
is saying, well, how about we make men with half a chest? They would still be able to have some virtue and be somewhat enterprising, but then we can keep it under control. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Yeah, that's a problem. Agreed. Agreed. But maybe instead of castrating and bidding the geldings be fruitful, how about we just part ways mutilate these men psychologically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, socially? There's an uncomfortability which I perceive among American evangelical Christians when it comes to plain talk and speaking directly. We by default, see that as rude, harsh. If a man is just confident and assertive, now if he's being confident and assertive and pushy with people he has no authority over, all right, then in that case, let's talk with him about it. Let's figure out whether we should do something about that. In that case, the man might be a bully. He may be an aspiring tyrant. But the problem I have The concern I have is we come to a character like Caleb, and it's not as though everybody who is described is being held up as an example for us to follow, but then it's certainly not without a explicit warning to be assumed that every description is absent exemplary characteristics. Just as much as it's true that we might read a description of somebody and hold back from following their example uncritically, because it might just be, this is who they were. We should also hold back from dismissing their example because, oh, that's just descriptive. Well, not so fast, right? Not so fast. This is a character here who was the only one in his whole generation coming out of Egypt. And we're talking a lot of other men. There were a lot of other men. This guy's one in a million, as they say. The only one in his generation, except for Joshua, who is allowed to see the promised land. When he speaks very directly, very to the point, very succinctly, let's get down to business, we should not assume that that's rude, that's inappropriate, that's toxic, or that's untoward. Because following up on something we've been talking about here recently on this podcast, the Jordan B. Cooper video, the lecture, very recent he gave that I found on YouTube, thanks to J.P. Chavez, who sent me the link. Jordan B. Cooper says we need to bring back the Christian gentleman. We need to make being a gentleman great again, so to speak. But what is that? What is our conception of the gentleman? If the emphasis is too much on the gentle part, and a man being authoritative is offensive to us, It may be that we have conformed to the pattern of this world with regards to egalitarianism, with regards to feminism, and if we just work in some Bible verses here and there to try and grasp at a few crumbs from the bread table as to what it means to be a man and how men should think of themselves and how they should relate to one another and how others in society should relate to men when they have jurisdiction, they have property, they have people under their authority— If we don't reckon with that first and foremost, we're showing partiality still. What I would love to see, just being honest here, what I would love to see is less of the sifting of men's characteristics by those who are 
in positions of authority and have gotten to be in positions of authority because the paradigm has been, I am woman, hear me roar. Women's empowerment, girl bosses. That paradigm has been circulating and it's part of why certain figures, certain characters are desired for their teaching, for their advising, for their commentary. Not all, but many. And yes, in the American evangelical scene as well, not just in broader society. It doesn't happen overnight, for instance, that a denomination is voting to ordain openly homosexual clergy or transgendered persons. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not as though a switch is flipped any more than it happens overnight that children are being told, you don't need to share this with your parents about us changing your preferred pronouns and your name, and you can put on girls' clothes if you're a boy or put on boys' clothes if you're a girl when you're at school. Yeah, we'll keep it from your parents. That didn't happen overnight. Neither did the feminization of the emasculation of men in broader society or in the church. Some of these things, I think, are not well understood by those who are just now coming to the realization, but then part of the reason why they're the ones we are going to be familiar with more so, because they are higher profile names, is because this business was already very active, very much in the mix when it was being decided whether they would be elevated. Nancy R. Percy may be a very lovely woman. She seems very intelligent. I've watched clips of a couple of interviews with her. She seems very intelligent, very thoughtful, very well-spoken. I think we would have a lot of agreement, really. She became a Christian partly through interactions with Francis Schaeffer's ministries. But I think we would disagree on some things. And I think part of why we would disagree is that the likes of a Nancy R. Percy are best-selling authors in no small part because certain intersectional boxes are checked by them. Now, if she's aware of that and if she admits, yeah, you're right, this is true, great. And it being true doesn't have to mean what she's saying is lacking in credibility. We should dismiss it, but we should definitely take it with a grain of salt. When Vody Bakum writes in Fault Lines about his experience being a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, being African-American, and essentially being put to the fore very often by those in leadership in the SBC because he was supposed to be symbolic of how they were embracing diversity. And when he talks about how quickly a lot of those same folks tried to get him off the stage as fast as possible, tried to marginalize him within the SBC when he started talking publicly about the SBC voting on a measure to encourage strongly Baptists in the SBC to get their kids out of public schools, homeschool them or send them to Christian schools, but get them out of the public schools years ago. I think what he's describing is, one, the kind of self-awareness I wish more of these characters had and were willing to be honest about. But then for another thing, I think part of what he is describing there 
is the trap that a lot of those kinds of people who are put to the fore, and they might be good quality people, don't get me wrong, but they're put to the fore because they check certain boxes that are called issues of relevance. Vody Bakum, very intelligent, very insightful. I greatly appreciate, I've been very much influenced by his preaching and by a couple of books that I've read by him. I love watching him in interviews with others. I very much enjoyed his interview with Ben Shapiro, but he's honest in a way I don't see a lot of these other influencers being honest. And I've talked about this with regards to Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. What makes me so uncomfortable about that book is it works the campaign against so-called toxic masculinity into every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, but not in an above-board way. It's all insinuation. The kinds of phrases and the kinds of verbs and nouns and adjectives in particular that are used are effeminate, not plain talk, not direct, not let's get to the point, let's get down to business, let's figure out what we're doing here at all. In fact, they're the antithesis of that. In fact, they seem as though they are systematically crafted and put on the page and presented to the reader to convince the reader that that kind of masculine expression, that kind of manliness is exactly what's wrong, not just with the world, but with so-called Christianity. Is it even Christianity? Do you even know Jesus if you are a straight shooter, if you're plain spoken, if you are manly and assertive? On the one hand, I am all for, let's be honest about our feelings and our emotions, but you know what? If you want me to be honest about my emotions and get in touch with my emotions, I'm feeling really, really frustrated at the neutering of men in the church. When it happens in broader society, that's predictable. That's, what are you going to get otherwise? I mean, what do you expect? When it happens in the church and it's spiritualized and it's turned into, you may not even be a Christian if you don't read Jesus as soft and effeminate. I have a real, genuine, deep and abiding frustration about that. You want me to get in touch with my feelings? You might be careful because you don't know what feelings you're going to get. You're not going to just get, oh, let's sit down and hug it out and have a cry session. You might get I am extraordinarily frustrated at how you are setting men up for failure. You are setting men up to be the opposite of what God commanded Joshua to be. What Joshua, by turn, exhorted the elders of Israel to be as they were going into Canaan. Now, just think with me for a moment about the context of Joshua and Caleb and all of the rest of the men of Israel going into Canaan to take possession of it. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that whole generation is of a very different character and quality than the generation that preceded them. Whereas the generation that preceded them had been slaves and in hard bondage and oppressed, and they probably were physically strong, but they weren't mentally tough, and they certainly weren't resilient. Every little setback, every little thing that they would need to decide, they were ready to kill whoever it was telling them we can do this and go back to Egypt over. They were ready to grumble against God and against Moses and Aaron and all the rest 
every time there was a setback, every time there was a challenge, however strong they may have been from working physically, they were weak in character. They were weak mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And the judgment for that was death. Not just any death, death in the wilderness. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died in the desert. Their bodies littering the desert. That's what God said. That's how seriously he took it. It wasn't no big deal. Oh, they're just grumbling. They're just complaining. You know what? You might say they're just in touch with their feelings. And they should probably be a little less focused on their feelings right now. They should probably be a little more focused on obedience to God's authority. The next generation, after that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, dies in the wilderness. The next generation has, if not their entire lives, they've spent all their adult lives on the road, taking only what you can pack and carry, not becoming sedentary, not becoming soft, not becoming weak, but getting stronger, getting tougher. My brother served in the Marine Corps. He enlisted right out of high school. He knew that that was what he wanted to do his senior year. He told everybody, I want to go into the Marines. And a lot of us laughed because he wasn't in particularly good shape. He was soft. He was a keyboard warrior. He played computer games and video games, and he didn't do a whole lot else. And then he said, I'm going to go into the Marines. And a lot of us laughed. And you know what? He put that laughing to an end when he started working out. He started getting with people who knew how to work out, who could show him good exercises to make his body strong, durable, tough. And by golly, he did it. He went off to boot camp. And I had the great pleasure of going with my dad to see Bryce graduate from boot camp at Paris Island. And I am thinking back to that right now. I'm thinking back to what boot camp actually is. It's weeks of push-ups, chin-ups, sit-ups, running, running with a pack. It's weeks of working hard so that you make your body hard, so that you make your character hard, or you test it. You find out if it's going to break, let's have it break here in testing, not in the field where people are going to die or live based on whether you bear up under pressure. If you think weeks of boot camp will make a man tough, see what he's made of, make him strong physically, make his mind stronger, make his will stronger through exercise. If you think weeks of boot camp will do that, now try decades. In a sense, after a fashion, God put the whole people of Israel through 40 years of boot camp before bringing them into Canaan. And you've got to think at the same time, who are they going up against? Nations and peoples and cities, which have been there for at least 40 years. They were there before and they're still there. So 40 years of self-indulgence, getting softer, getting weaker, not just from a physical standpoint, but from a mental, emotional, and spiritual standpoint, they were men without chests. Caleb is, yes, described. We're not all told everybody needs to be like Caleb, but by golly, Caleb is somebody we should pay attention to. <laughs> we should probably study this character sketch more than we do. In fact, I've never heard anybody 
do a character sketch or a sermon on the character of Caleb. I'm sure people do. I'm sure people have. But this guy is a man. (laughs) This guy is a man's man. I read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumay, and it was awful because basically what it was, and you can go back and check out my review of that book, head on over to the thegearedashleymulletshow.com, do a search. That's one way to do it. Just search for Jesus and John Wayne. You'll find it. But I read that book and I was so frustrated. And this is better than that one was, but not enough better. I'm sorry to say so far, because what that book was saying explicitly, this seems to be negotiating with, haggling with over what men will be allowed to keep in the way of honor, in the way of virtue and enterprise with regards to fruitfulness. In that book, Kristen Kobes Dumay tries to convince us that what is conservative American Christianity is just people who grew up on John Wayne and the Lone Ranger who were taken captive by Republican presidents, trying to hijack their faith and use it to launch wars, unprovoked wars of aggression against innocent people of color and the rest. That's not what Jesus would want. It's so oily to portray men as sitting in the place of the defendant, to subject us to this kangaroo court, even from within the American evangelical scene. It's so frustrating. Be careful what you wish for when you encourage men to get in touch with their feelings, because there's a lot of pent up frustration at having been blamed for everything, told we're responsible for everything, but also at the same time being told we're not going to be given authority to do anything. That is so frustrating. That's why men are checking out. That's why men are giving up on getting married and having children. In conjunction with the economic factors, the social factors, I would argue, are even worse because men run on respect. If they're healthy men, they thrive on the challenge and having a chance at proving that they're up to the challenge. That's part of why I'm convinced Caleb goes to Joshua and says, hey, remember the promise that was made to me? Yes, I want this portion. I want this land. And it doesn't go without saying that he is strong enough. He's tough enough. He can do it. He can handle it. But the reason why he is telling Joshua that is because it's on his mind as well. Am I strong enough? Am I tough enough? If he spent the last 40 plus years replaying in his mind what it is that he saw when he went in to scout out the land, this is probably, I would guess, part of the land that he went in to spy out. He remembers a certain vista and thinking, yeah, I could see myself living there, having a meal with my sons and daughters and their families there someday. I could see waking up to the sunrise over those mountains. I could see myself enjoying a nice cool beverage in the evening after a hard day's work with the sun setting in that direction. What's been taken away from so many men in America is the assurance that that is at a minimum acceptable, but even praiseworthy, even laudable, even good. We have been within the church, in far too many cases, conform to the pattern of this world. And the women, 
want to find any excuse possible, any excuse that will do, or any combination of excuses that will do to rule over their husbands, to subvert the authority of their husbands in the home. You know, it's interesting. One of the things, and I know I'm telling you I'm going to wait to do a full review of Nancy R. Percy's work here, The Toxic War on Masculinity, but I have to comment on this while we're here. One of the things she says that I'm going to chew on, I will consider it, I hear her, I want to think about it. One of the things she says I'm not so sure about is when God pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden after the eating of the forbidden fruit, he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. When God says that, Nancy Piercy says, well, that's not a command for the man to rule over his wife. In fact, that's part of the curse. It's not the way that it was supposed to be that the man would rule over his wife. And I say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That there would be strife between the husband and his wife. That's what's out of order. That there would be a constant jockeying for power and position within the home, within the family, within the community, between the husband and his wife. That's what is out of order. That's what is not according to the original design. The man having authority over his wife, over his children, not so fast. Don't say that that is a consequence of the fall, please, and thank you. There is plenty enough to support that claim. Say, for instance, the fact that the man was made first. God could have so easily created Adam and Eve simultaneously at the exact same instant. He didn't. He made the man first. And if you want to say, well, yeah, that's because it's the man's job to serve first, Okay, great, but don't give men the responsibility. Enough with giving men the responsibility without any of the authority. This is part of how we've gotten to now with regards to gun control, by the way. And let me explain what I mean by that. Gun control is a direct result, I'm convinced, of the effeminacy of the Democrat Party. Not that everybody who's in the Democrat Party is effeminate. No, 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 no. The people at the very, very top... However, they enjoy being the ones who are the most masculine. They enjoy castrating those that they don't deem to be fit to reproduce and make better slaves tomorrow. But it's the same mindset. They've carried the same mindset. You can emancipate the slaves, Abraham Lincoln, that's great. You cannot that easily, so quickly, so conveniently abolish the mindset that the slave owners related to their slaves from. The donor class, the elites within the Democratic Party still have that plantation owner mentality, and they relate to the men and the boys in broader society from that place. If they think somebody would make good breeding stock for better, more obedient slaves tomorrow, okay, yeah, we'll encourage that. But they're very content to snip and prune or talk men into it being their own idea wherever they don't believe that a man is fit to breed, fit to reproduce. They're eugenicists. They are social Darwinists. They have a God complex. But here's the thing. When they give money to churches and pastors and ministries and seminaries and theological departments, they want to say in how 
not just the men who are going to be behind the pulpits or in the publishing companies and in the radio stations and in the Christian music industry and the Christian entertainment industry, not just how those men are going to steer men. They also want a say in ultimately whether Christian men are going to be assertive enough to say to them, no, wait a second, this thing you are doing is not good. I don't think it's a bug. I think it's a feature of the last century or so of American politics that these guys like to have armed security and they, of course, have the leisure time to fill out all the paperwork, to get the tax stamps and get special permits to own firearms. And they think they are trustworthy because they have the time to put in at the range to do the target practicing and go to all the advanced training. But the common man, they don't want to trust having firearms to protect their homes, to protect their families, to protect their businesses. And meanwhile, it's of a piece that women were told, yes, we will prohibit the men from having any alcohol, even in moderation. Prohibition. Yep. Women, ladies, you got it. And then a step farther. Oh, you want the vote too? Okay, cool. That's fine. You know, there were groans, there was consternation, but okay, ultimately, yes, we'll give women the vote too. And then the next thing you knew, the likes of a Margaret Sanger launched what we have today as Planned Parenthood and tens of millions of unborn babies at the behest of their mothers and their fathers and their grandfathers in all too many cases could be legally murdered. The same party that wants gun control also demands abortion remain legal. Pope Francis has likened it to someone hiring a hitman to take out a member of their family. Except in this case, it's an innocent member of the family who has done you no wrong. They couldn't possibly have done anything to you in the womb. Maybe you're not feeling so well, but that's not your fault. That's part of the original curse. You will have pain in childbirth, God said. The same folks who demand of Republicans and conservatives in the open, big time donors who demand of the likes of Ron DeSantis. You're going to have to get moderate or I'm going to withdraw my financial support. They do the same kind of a thing to pastors. They do the same kind of a thing to Christian universities. They do the same kind of a thing to seminaries. They do the same kind of a thing to Christian publishing companies. They do the same kind of thing to Christian radio stations and Christian entertainment, music, film, etc. in general. You're going to get moderate and stop already with these certain issues or I'm going to pull my funding. I'm going to pull my money. And you know what? They get what they want. They get what they want. And this is why it's not as simple. It's not a bad thing for Christian men to become gentlemen. It's a good thing. But it's not enough to say we need to be like the old style Victorian gentlemen because a lot of those guys were all too passive as the Industrial Revolution was secularizing and making godless Europe and the U.S. about 150 or so years ago, about 100, 150 years ago, breaking up the family, separating out husbands from their wives, sending the wives off to work as well. Once you get into a world war, well, we've got to have these women go off and work in the factories, and then the men come back from war after years and years and years if they survived. And what did the women want then? Well, they wanted to stay at work. Or maybe the factory workers 
they were working alongside or the factory owners they were working under wanted them to stay. And so compulsory government schooling was this very convenient mechanism for saying we don't need the woman in the home, taking care of her children, raising them, teaching them. And the next thing you know, Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood or Birth Control League initially is giving us not just birth control, but also abortion, and not just those two things, but the sexual revolution. Aggressive, man-hating feminism, which in due time, sinful as it is, having conceived of the bad fruit, gives birth to transgenderism and aggressive homosexuality in your face, in the streets of major American and European cities, to the point that young people if they want to be praised, if they want to be affirmed, increasingly think, I've got to be some sexual minority. That's the only way to get ahead. (sighs) At a certain point, we have to stop obsessing over the particular sins of men and playing right into the hands, like we have been for decades, of these social Darwinists, these eugenicists. Because before you can take girls and women away from husbands and fathers and dole them out to wealthy, powerful men who want to do whatever they will do with them, either individually, directly, or by proxy, like the old plantation owners, the infamous ones of the antebellum South commonly did. Before you can accomplish that with minimal fuss, you have to convince the women and the girls that the biggest threat to their happiness is the head of their household having authority. Let's take away his authority. Let's make him responsible for everything. And by that, we mean to blame for everything. And when it all falls apart, let's have the clergy enlisted. Let's have the corporate news media enlisted. Let's have academia enlisted. Let's have politicians enlisted to talk about the problem with men. You know what? Maybe the problem is not all the men. Maybe it's a particular kind of man who believes with impunity he can sniff the hair of someone else's wife, someone else's daughter, being handsy with her for all the world to see with her husband or her father standing right there, smiling awkwardly. A particular kind of man is Joe Biden, but it's not just Joe Biden. It's a class of men who could frequent Epstein's Island and have no reprisals whatsoever. The closest we get is Prince Andrew being quietly pushed to the side Yeah, let's try and make that go away by just getting him out of the spotlight. We'll deal with him behind the scenes, but no legal consequences to speak of. But for the common man, the common man to behave like that, ooh, that's life in prison. That might be the death penalty, and the rest of us will just look the other way while whatever happens to the man who was diddling someone's underage daughter is disposed of by the men in the community. But when it's the very rich, the very powerful— And the corporate news media doesn't cover it. They don't get into that. The politicians don't follow that up with hearings. They don't launch committees to figure out why are none of the billionaires or foreign officials, domestic officials being arrested, tried, prosecuted. We have to understand what we're dealing with is a certain type of toxic masculinity being all anybody can talk about and all anybody can think about, 
but a very much more pernicious kind of toxic masculinity among the social Darwinists, among the eugenicists and the behavioral economists. That kind of toxic masculinity you're not supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to get into that. We want the common man to be in touch with his feelings until he starts to talk about that and he is visibly angry and upset and he wants justice to be served. When he starts going down that road, we say, ooh, okay, yep, see what we were just saying? Yeah, Nancy Piercy, can you please explain to this man what is appropriate biblical masculinity? Paul said, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. With all due respect to Nancy R. Percy, why is she being put to the fore to lecture all of the Christian men in America about what authentic biblical masculinity means? And why are all the examples that she presents of what it should look like seeming to miss the extent to which the American church has been feminized and even the way we talk about the head of the household, the wife submitting to her husband in all things as unto the Lord? Nah, that's not important. Not important. No, no. Why it's important and essential is also why there's a conspicuous vacuum in that area. When the split is about 40-60 bachelor's degrees awarded to young men versus young women, and those stats I've heard at various times are pretty well reflective of who all comes to church, about 40-60 men to women. Perhaps we are telling men to be soft, and far too many men who are willing to be soft So long as that gives them acceptance, they stick around. This problem is not common to only the last five to 10 years. It didn't start with Obama. It didn't start with the presidency of Donald Trump. C.S. Lewis was picking up on it in textbooks for schoolboys around about a century ago, telling schoolboys that when someone gets into a debate about whether a waterfall or a sunset is beautiful or it's sublime, they're not really talking about truth. They're talking about their feelings. C.S. Lewis knew that that is the seed that is planted that bears the nasty, nasty fruit of traitors in our midst, unfruitful men who are then by extension, listless, frustrated, anxious, checked out, combative, not virtuous, but if you call them out on not being Virtuous, they just say they're trying to be like Jesus. Not enterprising, but when you call them out for that, they just try to say, oh, I'm being content. No, you're being lazy. You're being passive. But then that's what you've been told you're supposed to be with regards to these key areas of dominion. We don't encourage men to take dominion. That's what this boils down to. The reason why we don't encourage men to take dominion, for the most part, is because some very, very wealthy, very arrogant folk with a God complex at the very, very top of the funding and patronization hierarchy for quite some time have been deciding that what we read, what we listen to, what we watch needs to leave the dominion to them. We need to be conditioned to leave the dominion to them. They'll handle it. Trust them. Now, wait a second. (laughs) How is it a problem if I am saying I need authority to go along with, I need capacity to go along with 
the responsibility. But when that guy is sitting on the equivalent of 10,000 men's means to provide and doing whatever he pleases with it and smiling like the Cheshire cat all the while in front of the cameras because he knows he's got them too. He's bought them too. That's part of what he did with his money. He bought friends in the media smiling as he shakes hands with the politicians because he bought them too. That's what he did with the money so he could do whatever else he wanted to do with the money. That guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not talk about him. He might come to church someday and he might cut a big fat check for us to build a shiny new building and expand the staff. And then wouldn't we be able to serve our community at such a higher level? Ah, You know what? You know what that is? (laughs) That is the collapsing of three spheres of authority that are biblical into just two. And now that some on the radical left are saying, why do we need two? Let's have one. Now you're starting to get some engagement from the church. And by the church, I mean not lay people. I mean the clergy. I mean the seminaries. I mean the systematic theologians. I mean, the Bible professors, we're starting to get some engagement there because it's like, whoa, there should at least be two spheres. I mean, come on, what's going on here? If the home is not a sphere of authority, then this business about Caleb makes zero sense. No sense whatsoever. Children obey your parents makes no sense. Wives submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as unto the Lord in everything. Yes, husbands love your wives. We've talked quite a lot about husbands love your wives, though. Thank you very much. Maybe all these unhappy women are not unhappy just because their husbands weren't loving enough. As Christ loved the church is more than just foot washing and foot rubbing and, no, it's okay, honey. I'll take care of it. In closing, I think it would be good for us to not be so quick to write off the example of Caleb in the book of Joshua. I think it would be good for us to not be so quick to dismiss his example because, well, that's just descriptive. Plain-spoken, authoritative, assertive, effective, faithful Caleb, still going strong at 80 to 85 years old, by God's grace, fighting battles, carpeting that diem. You present that vision to young men, and you will get engagement from young men. By all means, temperate with virtue, but you can't have the virtue when you make men without chests. C.S. Lewis knew that. We need to remember that. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.